This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Welcome to the Sunday edition of Daily Thunder, which for all practical purposes is our campus church service uh, during the week, even though really here we have seven days a week of church. Uh, it's, uh, I think for a lot of people, Sunday is just sort of that day. Uh, even my family, we have a tendency to recognize Sunday mornings as a sort of an extra special day. Uh, so I've been going through a uh, series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II, which might seem a little strange on a Sunday morning to get a little spiritual lesson from World War II. It's actually been really powerful. Uh, and my, I, I love history, and I really am fascinated with war history, but uh, specifically, I'm fascinated with how it trains us in our own spiritual battles and how we can understand that there's so much similitude between actual physical warfare, and our soul's engagement with an enemy. And, but not just our individual souls, but the church at large, we are engaged in a hostile war. And to recognize that and to awaken to that is very, very important. We have a tendency to be dimmed in the realities of spiritual battle. And, you know, it even feels sort of strange, you know, when you're walking around, it's like, yes, I'm in a spiritual battle. And everyone's like, you know, buddy... Uh, you know, there's just a lot of practical things happening in your life. I don't like it when you blame everything on the devil. And I don't like that either. When someone excuses everything in their life because the devil's doing it to them, I get that. But we have a tendency to go to the opposite end of the spectrum and remove the fact that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. So Paul in, in the New Testament is very clear on this spiritual battle. And he's going to train us, train our hands for war in that. But even in the Old Testament, you're going to see the clarity of the fact that there is actually a spiritual engagement. So in the first, I'm not going to go through the first four uh, parts to this, but I've sort of, I, I haven't gone necessarily chronologically, but I am. I, I've sort of been going through the 30s. The World War II is going to start in 1939. And one of the things I've made clear so far, at least a couple times, is that World War II is merely an extension of World War I. It is a result of World War I. Uh, the... World War I was a travesty of travesties, and uh, the, ex the Versailles Treaty in uh, 19, I'm sorry, yes, 1919, uh, was so heavy-handed, especially on the part of the, well, on the part of the Allies, but especially on the part of the French towards the Germans. The French don't, didn't want to ever be invaded again uh, and never be caught uh, like they were caught in uh, World War II. And so they punished the Germans uh, very uh, sorely in the Versailles Treaty, which led to a backlash. And so we're going to see that this growth of evil. Now, I'm German, and I know some of you in here uh, have German uh, ancestry too. So and the fact that I'm going to liken Germany to evil and to the kingdom of darkness, it's just very easy to do. In World War I, it's actually not as clear as that. You know, the Germans 
were culpable and they're the ones that end up getting blamed, but they weren't you know, just marred by total evil like they are in World War II. And so when Hitler comes into his leadership in 1933 over Germany, we see something malevolent creep into this nation. And there were a lot of Germans that were standing against it. Even in the, the military side, they're like, this guy's crazy. And there were multiple times where they tried to take him out. And instead, they were taken out. Uh, Hitler was empowered by something. And many people have, have said that throughout the, the years, is that this guy was not just a man. He was, but he was a man with the devil inside of him. Uh, that's a simple way of saying it. And that's, that's not just... Uh, various historians have said that, that there was something that moved this man. He had a brilliance. Uh, Churchill called him a ferocious genius, that he was able to see things that humans aren't able to see. And so everyone from Winston Churchill to Reese Howells, who was just merely a leader of a Bible college, uh, would say this man was demonically inspired. And so what we're going to see is a movement against, and I'm going to use Great Britain. I mean, I could use America and I could use France, but I'm going to use Great Britain as a test case. They're in a position. They're one of the lead uh, nations in the world. They are the responsible party. When you are the stronger party, just like in a, uh, a male-female uh, relationship, there is a responsibility for the man to be the one to take the splash from the road, you know, so he walks on the inside, and if the car is going to come near, it's like, hey, you stand on this side, I'll, I'll take the hit. Okay, if there's someone that's going to propose, it needs to be the man, right? He needs to take the risk. If someone's going to ask for a dance, it needs to be the man. The man is the one built for rejection. And so as a result, you see that there is a responsibility of the stronger party to live in an understanding way with the weaker party. And so in this situation... Great Britain being the stronger party is desirous not to be the stronger party but to take care of itself. And it's going to create a, quite a domino effect uh, in Europe because it is going to sacrifice the weaker countries to preserve its own peace. And so I call this one the sacrifice of the smaller. Now the reason I'm sharing this is not to share history but to talk with us very specifically about our own propensity to do this. That there are things that we will sometimes sacrifice that we're supposed to protect in order to maintain our comfort, in order to, to maintain our own peace. And we're going to see that happening in the global scale in Europe uh, during World War II. <clears throat> the strange human potential. I know this little line underneath it is so extreme that uh, it's... It's hard to even swallow, but I'm going to say it. Sacrificing our children for convenience. It's interesting, but this is not just a World War II problem, and it's not just a 2020 problem. It's a historic problem. All throughout the ages, there has been a bait, and that is if you will sacrifice your children, you will find abundance. If you give up your children, then you will prosper. Your crops will prosper. The sun will shine upon you. You will have good fortune if you sacrifice your children. Now, it's interesting because as Christians, we're like, well, I'm not going to fall for that. Well, the nation of Israel fell for that. Isn't that a fascinating statement? They were tutored by the law of God, precisely how they ought to live, and yet they fell for this classic demonic trick. 
that you, though you are in a position to protect and to help, actually if you give up your children, you will find prosperity. So, I mean, it's an insanity at the very highest level, and yet it's uh, all throughout history. So in Ezekiel 16, 20 through 21, and if I gave you all the scriptures that actually say this, of how many times God is going to warn about the God Molech, and how many times he's going to say, do not do this, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, if you take one time in the Bible where God says something, it's enough. But God is going to over and over and over again deal with the issue of Molech. So in Ezekiel, which is pretty far into the you know, history of Israel, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. To them, meaning the, the false gods, false deities, Molech in, in particular. You have slain my children and have offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire. Who would do that? We live in a culture, this North American culture does this all the time. It's called abortion. And this isn't even supposed to be a political message that I'm giving, right? Because I don't look at abortion as a political issue. It is a moral issue. It is an issue of the state of being of any culture. Just like Great Britain, you could say, oh, it's political that they sacrificed Austria, that they gave up the Rhineland, that they sacrificed uh, the Sudetenland, and they gave up Czechoslovakia. It's all political. It's moral. It's ethical. You see, we are making a decision, being the stronger party, we have resource that we could keep for ourselves to self-protect, to self-defend, or we could give up that strength to protect the weaker. You tell me biblically, without even me going into the scriptures yet, which way God has assigned us to go. Now what's interesting is when something becomes a political issue, some of us dim on it. We sort of grow foggy on it. It's like, well, it's really not my territory. And as a result, in something like abortion, I've noticed in myself, okay, I'm going to give a self analysis because when I go through World War II history, I feel like I am vulnerable to being Great Britain. That's the way I feel. I know that I'm in a position of strength in this culture. I know that I've been given a lot, not just like academic knowledge, not just the ability to communicate, but resource and the ability to do something, to marshal people together to do something. And yet, we all know that if Eric Ludy sticks his head up out of the trench and starts hollering at the enemy, that bullets come directly towards Eric Ludy. So what's the wiser thing to do? To go into the trench, maybe holler when you're in the trench, but no one can hear you there, right? And so as a result, if I'm going to stand up against abortion in this generation, I'm going to bring havoc upon my life. So it makes more sense to sacrifice that cause and to give it up in exchange so I can maintain my ministry. I can maintain my voice. This has been the reasoning throughout generations where good men and good women will do something that is completely irrational and illogical when you look at it on paper to accomplish something that they feel is so important. Like for Great Britain, it's like, well, peace. Peace is what our people want, and they did. Great Britain, after World War I, did not want war. And so if you were going to be a politician and you wanted to be elected, you could not stand for war. You could not mention Hitler. If you mention Hitler as a politician, you're out. We don't want to hear about those things. Hey, you know, da, 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 da. they cover their ears and just make noises. They don't want to hear about it. In our generation, we have the same thing. We have a culture that does not want to hear what you have to say. Oh, yeah, or you're one of those. So in those days, it was called being a warmonger or a fearmonger. Okay, so we have 
our terms today, that if you were to stand up against the vile issues creeping into our culture, you have names as well. And if you want to be elected into public office, you have to recognize that you have to go with the people. You can't go against the people, otherwise you will never have a voice. And the same is true for ministry. If you want to have an influence in this culture, you have to dim down certain things so you don't look like one of those crackpots over there. Same issue in Great Britain in the 1930s. They were facing the same issue while a great evil was rising on the scene. I'd never seen a picture of Matthew Henry. I, I had a totally different picture of him. By the way, that's the most complimentary one I could find. <laughs> Moloch, as some think, was the idol in and by which they worshipped the sun, that great fire of the world, and therefore in the worship of it, they made their own children. Sacrifice to the, sacrifices to this idol. Sorry, I took out this sub-point where they also made them uh, servants to it, but they made their children... Sac- they sacrifice their children as a form of worship, uh, burning them to death before it, imagining that the consecrating of but one of their children in this manner to Moloch would procure good fortune for all the rest of their children. It was a very fascinating moment in my life when I recognized the same bait that I had. Reese and Lily were stuck in Haiti, and if any of you know the story, it was an impossible situation. And we had Annie uh, Weshi and Harda Artsma that were down there, and the situation was so impossible and we were risking uh, Annie and Harta's life as well in having them down there. there was actually death threats on them and there was this thought that goes through my head I mean first of all my life had no peace during this whole season of uh, 29 months I mean it was just torment uh, there was a whole season where Leslie couldn't even eat and it was just it was so traumatic and the thought was if we give up Reese and Lily then Annie and Harta can come back, we get our peace back, right? No harm done, no foul, right? That was the bait. It was, it's the same bait. It's the same concept. In other words, you let go of your children to get peace. Huh. I actually recognized what it was, and I even called it Moloch in that time. I was like, I see it, it's the bait. And I understood the bait. I understand why people have done this throughout history. If you're being hounded by something and you know that it just to give up this one piece of your life, it might even be your most disobedient one. It's like, yeah, you know, that'd be nice to have out of the house anyways, so that we can have peace. Instead of fighting for that which God has established and getting the blessing God's way. You don't get a blessing from God by sacrificing your children. It's all a lie. And the same was true in Great Britain. What did they do? They sacrificed the smaller in exchange for peace, and what did they end up with? The greatest war of all history. In other words, it didn't actually save them. It's a lie. Places of assumed safety. A mother's womb, a marriage covenant, a family trust, a parent's love, a church fellowship. Those five elements of trust or places where I'm going to liken it to a league because we're going to have a league of nations uh, after World War I until World World War II which proved to not be very effective but it was supposed to be a safety a place where once you enter into that covenant you are secure a mother's womb once you enter into a mother's womb it should be the safest place on earth because there is no one who would fight for you more heartily than a mother 
We all know that. I mean, that's just the way it's, that's inborn. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that. You don't have to be a Christian to perform that. It's just what mothers do. A marriage covenant till death parts us. This is something that no matter uh, wind, hail, storm, whatever it is, it will never separate this bond. This bond is forever. A family's trust. No one will ever in my family betray me. They're my family. They're my own flesh and blood. A parent's love. I don't care what you do, son. I don't care what you do, daughter. I will still love you. A church fellowship. I mean, this is the bond of bonds. This is knit together by the Holy Spirit. We are known as Christians by our love for one another. I mean, this is safety. And yet what I just named are the places of greatest havoc, greatest pain in probably most of our lives. This is some tough stuff. And this is the breakdown in our culture where we have seen a sacrifice in order to maintain peace because this is all-out war. Why does a woman abort? Well, I mean, I'm sure there's, there could probably be multiple reasons. The primary one is for peace. The primary one is because the fear of having a child or the pain associated with the memory of that child, it's like, hey, peace. I just want peace. And as a result, you see the same thing, the sacrifice of the smaller in order to gain the convenience. The power of treaty. So we have a league between nations that is taking place from 1919 all the way through uh, 1939 when the war is starting. This is supposed to be, this league of nations is supposed to be a protection for every nation, specifically the smaller nations. So if, let's give an example, say Germany, were to invade Austria, that Austria then appeals to the League of Nations, and the League of Nations says, hey, you get out of Austria. It, you, and so as a result, Austria is bigger than Austria, because if Austria by itself is trying to stand against Germany, well, there's no, no chance, right? But Austria and the rest of the world stand against Germany. Austria can sort of hold its head up high and say, yeah, yeah, stick it to you, Germany. You can't, you can't come in here. However, that's if everyone does what they're supposed to do. What if what if Germany invades Austria and then the rest of the League of Nations goes, well, we don't really want to mess in that. That's political. And, you know, that Germany, that was really their territory anyways. And so we're going to just give it back to them. And, you know, it's just reasonable. We were a little hard on them in 1919. So we're going to overlook this crime. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what happened. So the League of Nations became a joke, really. Sorry, guys, I'm trying to get... There we go. So... Now, these are a lot of big terms, and if you're a young person, you're just looking at big terms uh, on the, the board here. I'm not trying to impress you with big terms. These are just key moments in the 1930s that are going to eventually lead to war, but this is the breakdown. Sort of like, I don't know what our list would be personally and as a church or as a culture, but we sort of all have our list too. I would say the church is very weak right now because we have attempted to satiate a culture we have attempted to pacify a culture. We've said, oh, we're welcoming. We're, we're actually not wanting to be judgmental and harsh. And we don't want to just declare that there's only one way to the Father. We know that you know, everyone has their own views and opinions where we've sacrificed things. For some of us, it's been doctrines. We've sacrificed truths. We've sacrificed little lives. We've sacri sacrificed ideology that actually matters in the whole scope of how a society holds together. So conscription, that's uh, 
basically bringing people into a military operation, bringing soldiers in. So it's like if I were to conscript all the men in this room into the military, well, you would leave your normal life and you'd immediately become a soldier. And so it was illegal for Germany to conscript. They were allowed a 100,000 person standing army, which you could say, well, that's huge. They had a six million. So they had to go from the Treaty of Versailles down to 100,000. Imagine how pathetic that would be. Well, they didn't like that at all. And yet to conscript and to bring in more was a violation of the Treaty of Versailles. And they did it. You know why Hitler did this? Because he knew that France and Great Britain did not want war. And so he basically even told his generals, they'll do nothing. Just watch. And his generals are like, you can't do this. Please don't do this, Hitler. He says, watch me. And he does it, and this guy was genius. What, a ferocious genius? That's, how, that's what Winston Churchill called him. And guess what? France and, and, and Great Britain did nothing. The Treaty of uh, the, the uh, League of Nations did nothing. They had all the power. They had all the military force to shut this down. Instead, they let Germany rebuild their military force. The Rhineland, which I'll show you on a map of Germany in just a second, is this portion on the uh, western uh, side, which is towards the, uh, the French side uh, of Germany, which is where all the tension is, because Germany and France are just mortal allies, and they always have been. And so this territory, they were not allowed to have any soldiers. Germany was not allowed to occupy, is what it's called, the Rhineland. And so once uh, Hitler realized that France and Great Britain and the League of Nations did nothing. And all the, all the uh, generals are like, I can't believe that worked. And then he's like, let's take the Rhineland. Let's move our soldiers into the Rhineland. Well, they're like, you can't do that. That could start a war. I mean, France could crush us. France won't lift a finger, is what Hitler said. And he was right. I mean, who would have, how did he know that? I mean, France, why would France allow them to do that? You know that even Hitler himself would acknowledge that at that moment, if France had come against them, he would have fled. That they would have totally destroyed Germany if France had just done what France should do. So they occupied the Rhineland. Austria. It's called the Rape of Austria. They literally moved into Austria. And the Allies, the League of Nations, France, Great Britain did nothing. The Sudetenland is the next thing, which comes from what's called the Munich Pact, where it's a territory, and I'll show it to you on the map, it's a territory, it's like a rim around Czechoslovakia that is a protective layer. And Germany is not allowed to be in there, and that gives a protection to Czechoslovakia. And yet, the Allies are going to actually give that to Germany to make peace, which then ends up leading to the sacrifice of the smaller. Czechoslovakia is destroyed because of that decision. Because Hitler said, oh, I'm, I'm not going to take Czechoslovakia. The guy's a liar. You need to know that in your life. When he's asking you to sacrifice a smaller in order to get peace, he's not after peace. He's not going to give you peace. He's going to take advantage of your stupidity. All right, so there's my picture of Germany uh, uh, in the Second World War. So I, I showed you a picture in my very first uh, lesson on this that the, the, the shape of Germany in 1914 uh, looked sort of like a horse's head. It was a very docile horse, if you remember, because I put eyes on it, and it looked sort of fearful. Then uh, in, in 2020, it looks like an old lady. <laughs> I put eyes on that, and she looked so caring and kind. But there was a period of time 
and this is during 1939 to 1945, where basically that's what Germany looked like. And so as the war is about to begin, as, you know, as, as Germany chomps down on Czechoslovakia, you know what would be in the mouth? Czechoslovakia, the smaller. And I mean, it's just extraordinary that in history, now obviously on the map you wouldn't see that eye with the furrowed brow. Uh, so I, I did add that. I need to acknowledge that. Uh, but isn't it interesting how evil <laughs> that nation looks? And it's one, one time in history when it looked like that. I think that's extremely fascinating. Now, I've never heard anyone else comment on that. That's, that's Eric Ludy just studying maps. So before the conscription, this is what Germany looked like. Okay, it obviously still looked sort of evil, right? And look at that. That eye still is aimed right towards Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. But so conscription begins, and then you're going to see them occupy the Rhineland. So that's the Rhineland territory in red. And then you're going to see them uh, take Austria, which then fills in the jaw. And then the Munich Pact is going to give them the Sudetenland, which now is going to surround Czechoslovakia. I want you to, if Czechoslovakia is in the map, I'm sorry, in the mouth, what does it look like? Uh, Czechoslovakia, isn't that fascinating? Doesn't it look like a, uh, a woman crying out for help? Uh, it's just, okay, that's just Eric looking at it. You know how you can look at clouds and say, it looks like a dog, and everyone else is like, it does not look like a dog. <laughs> I think it looks like a woman crying out for help. I think it's uh, extremely interesting. But that's, again, me looking too far into maps and things like that. I just think it's fascinating. Uh, Kurt von Schnuschnig. He's uh, a key character in dealing uh, at the high levels with Hitler. And this is a conversation that is recorded, recorded. He says, I realize that you can march into Austria. But Mr. Chancellor, he's talking to Hitler. Whether we wish it or not, that would lead to the shedding of blood. We are not alone in the world. That probably means war. The Germans didn't want war. Hitler wanted war. Uh, the Germans want their territory back. There's no doubt about that. They, they, were, uh, they lost territory in the Treaty of Versailles. That is, to them, German territory. And they want it back. However, Mr. Chancellor, you do live in a world that will do something. And this could mean the shedding of blood. This could mean war. Listen to Hitler's response. Don't believe that anyone in the world will hinder me in my decisions. Italy? I am quite clear with Mussolini. With Italy, I'm on the closest possible terms. England? England will not lift a finger for Austria. And France? Well, two years ago when we marched into the Rhineland with a handful of battalions, at that moment I risked a great deal. If France had marched, then we should have been forced to withdraw. But for France... It is now too late. Uh, darkness. So Winston Churchill, uh, this is his uh, statement about Hitler's success. I mean, when it is shocking that Hitler could guess so accurately how everyone was going to respond. It says, Hitler's generals were aghast at running such risks. When by waiting a few years, the German army would again be master. Although Hitler's political judgment had been proved correct by the pacifism and weakness of the Allies about conscription, the Rhineland, and Austria, the German high command could not believe that Hitler's bluff would succeed a fourth time. It seems so much beyond the bounds of reason that great victorious nations, listen to this statement, it seems so much beyond the bound of reason that great victorious nations, possessing evident military superiority, would once again abandon the path of duty and honor which was also for them the path of common sense and prudence. 
Now I'm going to read that little quotation again. Classic Churchill is able to say things in a way that is quite grand. But imagine that we're talking about the church. We're talking about those that have received the shed blood of Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Most High God. They are seated in heavenly places at the right hand of majesty. All things are under Christ's feet. They have the military superiority. They are a victorious nation. And the enemy is moving into territory that he legally does not have any right to. It seems so much beyond the bounds of reason that great victorious nations possessing evident military superiority would once again abandon the path of duty and honor, which was also for them the path of common sense and prudence. So here's Hitler talking about Czechoslovakia in the near future. After he takes Austria, and he's proven correct again, I will decide to take action against Czechoslovakia only if I am firmly convinced, as in the case of the Rhineland and the entry into Austria, that France will not march and that, therefore, England will not intervene. So he's testing the wind. It's like, are they going to respond? No, they want peace at all costs. I mean, it's proven over and over again. You can even get all the parliamentary proceedings, and Hitler, guess what? He's reading the transcriptions of them. He wants to know what their thoughts are, and what does he hear? There is no way they're fighting no matter what. There is no one in Parliament that's going to support us going over there to Europe and fighting. Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister at the time, and if you ever hear poor Neville Chamberlain's name, it's usually you know, associated with a boo in history. He's a nice man, and he meant well, but he made some massive mistakes. He thought Hitler was just a good old guy, and you know he just wanted to get his German territory back. And so... He trusted him. Neville Chamberlain trusted uh, Hitler. You have only to look at the map to see that nothing that France or we could do could possibly save Czechoslovakia from being overrun by the Germans if they wanted to do it. I have therefore abandoned any idea of giving guarantees to Czechoslovakia or to the French in connection with their obligations to that country. Boo. You see, he actually is obligated. The, tr the League of Nations is obligated. Everything about Great Britain is obligated, even at the ethical level of being the stronger party. Winston Churchill, by the way, who will take over as prime minister from Neville Chamberlain when Neville, Neville Chamberlain is ousted. The declarations of British and French statesmen were, of course, studied in Berlin, Berlin being the capital of Germany. The intentions of these Western powers to persuade the Czechs to be reasonable in the interests of European peace was noted with satisfaction. The Munich Pact. So if you, if you study Churchill, Churchill is going to look at the Munich Pact as one of the great crimes of modern history. And all it is is Neville Chamberlain, the French, uh, coming together with uh, Hitler and, and Mussolini and figuring out how they could have peace. And so here's the secret. You just need to give up the Sudetenland. So the Sudetenland needs to be sacrificed. It's not that much anyways. And Hitler says, if I get the Sudetenland, I'm done. I will pursue nothing else. I'm not interested in Czechoslovakia. He didn't mention, I'm not interested in Poland. I'm not interested in anything else. This is what I need. And if I have this, I'm satisfied. And so... Neville Chamberlain came back with a piece of paper, waving it out of his car. He actually came out of the, uh, his prime minister habitat, whatever that was called, on Downing Street, uh, Downing Street. He waves it, 
and he says, it is peace for our time. And I mean, just roar, uproar of people, everyone cheering. It's peace for our time. He sacrificed the smaller in order to get peace. So it's a decision to give up the Sudetenland to Germany was reached in exchange for peace, the Munich Pact. So here's Neville Chamberlain. I believe it is peace for our time. It's just amazing because not too far into the future, you have one of the greatest outbreaks of violence that has ever happened on earth. Isn't that fascinating? It is peace for our time. That's being duped. This clicker seems to be having some serious problems. So Benito Mussolini, I went through a few different options for the pictures I could pick for him. Uh, I wanted something that felt very stern. Uh, He's going to be the dictator over uh, Italy. So Italy was on the side of the Allies in World War I, and he's going to flip, but he's going to side with Hitler. Not a good decision on his part, by the way, in the long run. So this is his opinion of the British leadership. So they're coming out and they're pleading for peace. What do we need to do? What do we need to, pass, to do to pacify and appease? And so this is how Benito Mussolini looked at the British leadership. These men, the British leadership, are not made of the same stuff as Francis Drake and the other magnificent adventurers who created the empire. They are, after all, they are after all, the tired sons of a long line of rich men. When I read these things, I feel very close to being that. That we have had so much prosperity in our nation that we are very vulnerable to being the tired sons of a long line of rich men. How about the church? We are the tired sons of a long line of great history. Yeah, our ancestors in the church worked heroic deeds. They did amazing things, but that's a different time. You know, today you can't expect us to live that way. It's not even necessary that we live that way. So this is Mussolini's, uh, uh, what, uh, how would it, advisor, Galeazzo Ciano. The British do not want to fight. They try to draw back as slowly as possible, but they do not want to fight. Our conversations with the British have ended. And then Benito Mussolini, fascinating observation. He says, Lord Perth, the British ambassador, has submitted for our approval the outlines of the speech that Chamberlain will make in the House of Commons in order that we may suggest changes if necessary. So now you have the British that are actually submitting their speeches to the Italians and the Germans so that they could get approval. And he says... I believe this is the first time that the head of the British government has submitted to a foreign government the outlines of one of his speeches. It's a bad sign for them. The reason we have all this documentation is because Italy and Germany were taken back over by the Allies, and they have all the documentation of all the communications. It's extremely interesting to see the mindset of the evil empires. So what we have in a summary, this is my my same little list I gave you before of conscription, the Rhineland, Austria, Sudetenland, and then Czechoslovakia. Conscription, it's overlooked for the sake of peace. The Rhineland, overlooked for the sake of peace. Austria, overlooked for the sake of peace. The Sudetenland, given up for the sake of peace. So what's going to happen to Czechoslovakia? Well, uh, do you want to fill in the blank? It is going to be given up and sacrificed for the sake of peace. Are we sacrificing our children for the sake of peace? So, now most of us would immediately say, no way are we doing that. However, the reason I put quotations around children is because it may not be your own children, biological children. However, 
are we sacrificing our own children for the sake of peace? Okay, think about the children of our culture. I mean, think about the children of this world. If you engage yourself with the issues of needy children, it opens up a serious battlefront in your life. A battlefront that you could very quickly convince yourself you do not have the resources to fight. It's exactly what Great Britain said. We do not have the resources to fight this. We're still paying off debt from World War I. We do not have what we need to stand for this issue. Are we sacrificing our children? The things that have been entrusted to us. How about the truth of the gospel in our generation? It's like, how about we just you know, dim that down so we don't have the issues that would come with standing up for it? Understanding the claim of the weaker. So one of the, the key thought processes I'd say that I have worked over in my life is the fact that the moment I declare that I'm the body of Christ, the moment I declare that this body is bought with a price, it, I, it's no longer mine, it's his. He has purchased it with his shed blood, then I am his. Now what he tells to the poor and the needy is that they have a claim on him. That he will stand by the poor, he will stand by the needy. He will stand by the orphan and the widow. So the orphan and the widow know that God has their back, that God will care for them. And so when they make a plea unto heaven, you know what God does? He takes those that have said, God, I belong to you, and he shares what they have, their strength, their resource, with the weak. And so in that sense, the weaker has a claim on us because we belong to the living God who says, if the poor and the needy and the orphan and the widow and the imprisoned and the hungry and the naked ever have a need, then I can come to you to meet that. You are my body. I supply for you so that you can supply for them. That hand of yours, that's my hand. It's the hand of the body. And I am going to request that hand to be a hand of service. You see that money in your pocket? That's not yours. That's actually mine. I gave it to you. And so though you care for it and it is entrusted to you, I am going to ask that you relinquish it into, in this situation to that which has claim. Okay, the moment you start thinking that way, it really does change your life. However, it's risky to think that way. I don't know if you guys are feeling the risk factor. Just go, whoo, at the moment you begin to open up to such a notion. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's why we would rather self-preserve than relinquish. Because there's a lot of need in this world. And it starts to get a little overwhelming. It's getting hot in here, guys. Could so, it, it could, I need to loosen my collar. Because it is a very serious thing that we are the body of Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in us and there is need around us. And that's why the sacrifice of the smaller is what I'm going to call the antithesis to what we as the church do. We do not give up the smaller to get peace we get, lay down our life, we lay down our lives for the smaller to give them peace. It's the inverse, actually, that the Spirit of God does. So a plea for justice, this is God speaking, defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. It'd be fascinating if we actually took that seriously as opposed to just poetry in the Old Testament that actually as an action of soul that the Spirit of God does within us, there is a defense of the poor and fatherless, that we do justice to the afflicted and needy, that we deliver the poor and needy, that we free them from the hand of the wicked. 
The God of justice, what does he say? Psalm 72, 4. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. So Psalm 68, 5 says he puts the solitary in families. And a lot of us are, you know, he's a father to the fatherless. And so many of us are just like, you know what? Praise God that God takes care of those things. However, how does he take care of them? How does he do this? What is his instrument in this natural realm to accomplish his purposes? So we can all nod along and say, that's good doctrine, dear brother, that he does bring justice to the poor of the people. How does he do it? He does save children, save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. How does he do this? Now we know God can thunder out of heaven. God can do that any way he wants, right? However, his chosen vehicle to reveal his heart and the manifold wisdom of heaven is his church. The Apostle James says it this way. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. Hey, Czechoslovakia, I know you're surrounded because we really uh, put you in a really awkward and precarious position so we could just secure our own peace. So I know that you're in an awkward position, but keep warm and well fed. I hope all goes well for you, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. King Solomon, Proverbs 3, 27 through 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. How would that apply to World War II? Or maybe I could say, how would that apply to us? Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. It's a real challenge, and I'm right there with you in, your, in our thinking, because we're, most of us in here are North American in our thinking. So if I have $10, and someone over here needs $10, it's within my power to help them, but in helping them, I'm actually giving up my $10. That sounds like a bad situation, because I need my $10 to tend to my own needs. This is a challenge. Great Britain had had more than $10, but they have $10, and to, to help protect Czechoslovakia would cost eight, and that's going to make Great Britain weak. So Great Britain's logic, which is very similar to ours, is we have to first think about us. And if we were to help you, we would then make ourselves vulnerable and we'd both go down. Okay, so classic thinking of the self-preserving. And some of you could say, well, how else are you supposed to look at that? I'll teach you God's way of looking at it. So first of all, our thought is, but it's impossible. I can't do that. You can't, if I give my resource to protect Czechoslovakia, then I'm robbing my resource from one place. And good military tactics, it is how you think. You cannot just take all your military force and bring it somewhere else and expect to defend over here, right? So it's impossible. Neville Chamberlain's quote, I gave it to you earlier, you have only to look at the map to see that nothing that France or we could do could possibly save Czechoslovakia from being overrun by the Germans. It's impossible. If I have therefore abandoned any idea of giving guarantees to Czechoslovakia or to the French in connection with their obligations to that country. Now let's go back in time to the feeding to the 5,000. So we have at least 5,000 men. I don't know how many women and children. There's a lot of people there. And, you know, they're, they're hungry. Now, imagine that we have, I got a picture of a uh, guy in the crowd. Uh, I, I did some Google search on uh, James the Apostle, and I got that, just so it sort of looked like an old-fashioned uh, guy from first century. 
I don't know if that's what he would have looked like, but that's uh, at least a guy from the crowd. So he's in the crowd, and imagine that he hears the fact that the disciples are being asked to feed these people. You have only to look at the scanty amount of food, scanty amount of food present to see that nothing that the disciples can do could possibly feed this multitude. Just look at the map. It's impossible. You know what Jesus commands his disciples to do? Because they say, well, send them away to get food. God, take care of Czechoslovakia in your own way. I can't risk what I have. They do not need to go away. Give them something to eat. Uh, Jesus, we, we have like a few fishes and loaves. Feed them. You're being asked to do something that you actually cannot do unless God supernaturally works through you. Rule of thumb in the kingdom of heaven. We do not do this out of our own resource. We do it out of his resource. So when you measure how you're going to do this by your own energy, by your own capacity, by your own bank account, you will halt and you will stop and you will sacrifice the smaller in exchange for reasonableness. But if we begin to function as Christians and we say, he told me to give them something to eat and everyone can look at you like, yeah, but you only have a few loaves and fishes. He told me to feed them. Uh, yeah, the guy in the crowd's like, this is ridiculous. What are you thinking? Watch what my God will do. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I remember he's talking to the goats. I feel like we have a lot of goatishness in our American Christianity. And it concerns me. It concerns me. I don't want goatishness in me. I'm not just talking about like, hey, you guys need to get rid of your goatishness. Most of us in here have done great things. We've sacrificed greatly to serve. And yet I still feel the propensity, like Great Britain, they sacrificed so much to win World War I. But the propensity then is when World War II is approaching to draw back. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. To act is our job. To pull off the impossible is his. Our job isn't to save the world. Our job is to do what he's put in front of us to do. This message intimidates me too, by the way. I don't know where all of you guys are at. I have gone through a lot of difficulty in my life from heeding this message in the past. So when you have burn marks all over your body, you have a tendency to stay away from that which burns you. And yet, everything in me says yes and amen to what I just said. I am a Christian First and foremost, not just a mere human who thinks about himself. I have forsaken that life, and I have chosen the life of Christ. And I want each of us to freshly rally around what we know to be true, 
instead of what our feelings are claiming this morning. Because feelings are loud, noisy, obnoxious. We have an evil in this world that is seeking to devour the weaker. And we, for whatever reason, have been entrusted with a Great Britain-like position where we have resource, we have knowledge, we have understanding, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are we gonna do with it? To act is our job. To pull off the impossible is his. Father, we make ourselves available to you unreservedly to declare that your ways are higher than our ways. And Lord, we cannot feed this multitude, but we give you our fishes and loaves because we believe you can. Lord, we need greater power. We need greater strength for the battle that is before us. We are susceptible to the bait of comfort and peace. But we want peace on your terms, not on the devil's. O Prince of Peace, you bring about peace your way in our life. And may we not scrap for it any other way. Lord Jesus, we submit to you. We declare you as faithful and true. And we declare that you are the Lord and Master of the body of Christ. May we have eyes to see the weak and the poor around us today unlike we have ever before. May the gospel be ready upon our lips and may we proactively position ourselves to help the weaker. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.